And remember that the, for the entrepreneur, it's like waking up the day after an exit. It's like waking up for a car crash. Yeah. And you're checking your limbs to make sure that you're still intact and you're still alive. And your profound sense is not elation, it's relief. Hello, and you're very welcome back to All In, your weekly business show here on Joe, backed by AIB. This week, we're talking exit strategy. When's the right time to sell your company? What's the best way to structure the deal? And how do you handle parting with something you've put your heart and soul into? We'll be in the company of Mark Little from Kinzen and John O'Sullivan from Act Venture Capital. Meanwhile, our Trailblazer interview will be with the brains behind the Wexford tech company, powering millions of deliveries with companies like ASOS, eBay and Littlewoods. That's coming up in just a few minutes. But first, don't forget to hit subscribe so you can catch the full show every week on podcast or on YouTube. We are, of course, on Facebook, on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And you can contact us anywhere, anytime with the hashtag All In Business. Joe presents All In together with AIB, backing Irish business. So, John and Mark, thank you so much for being with us for this discussion on exit strategy. I'm going to go to you first, John, because you have overseen 74 exits. Yeah. You must have picked up something about the good, the bad and the ugly and everything in between. Yeah, generalizations are difficult because each entrepreneur, each company is going through its own particular journey to get to that point where it has an exit opportunity. So I want to qualify it with, with that. But if there's one thing that's consistent, if you, if you trace back on nearly all of them, um, it's incredibly similar how familiar they've become within their sector. So not only have they been building a business, the profile of what the company's been doing has actually been running quite a bit ahead of the business. And the people that matter in that industry would generally be quite familiar with what that company's doing. Now, while that's quite easy to say, it's really hard for a CEO to achieve. Because not only are you trying to build a company, build a product, keep customers happy and raise investment if that's the route they've chosen. At the same time, they have to find this place and the time and the opportunity to make themselves aware, to see that they have executives in their industry, who they are, what they're doing and why it's going to be important. Years in advance of when an exit might ever happen. Right. And that's actually that huge. sounds hard. <laughs> some people actually, when you express it to them, they can you can you can describe it. They can go and do it. Mm-hmm. And some people genetically, automatically know, I have to do that. Right. And is that what you're looking for then? Even at investment stage, are you looking for someone who feels like I have to do this? This is for me, and yeah. also is really forward thinking. To some extent, you you know you, you can describe it, and then people can go and do it. I mean, because at one level, it sounds simple; it's just very hard to do. But actually, what investors are really looking for is something, someone who just, that's naturally in their DNA. That is how they operate. That is what they're thinking of. You don't have to remind them of it. We don't have to talk about it, literally. It is a normal function of what they're doing. Okay. That's really interesting. Um, and for you, Mark, you've, you have an exit under your belt, of course. But you don't like with, the word exit. John, one of, se- one of the 74? <laughs> he is, yeah. I was going to say it first, but I thought it would be a little bit... You could talk about Mark as a case study. <laughs> well, actually, we could. I won't put you under the microscope. <clears throat> but Mark, clear. you're not a fan of the term exit. Why is that? No, and it's partly because of what John talks about. The people who are successful as entrepreneurs are people who have actually looked around the corner and seen what the industry is going to be. Mm. So in their DNA, they feel like they can move an entire industry with them as well. So the idea of saying this one snapshot in time is how you're going to be judged is kind of ridiculous. Because first of all, the more interesting part of the exit is how you got there. How did you achieve dominance? And if you're at that high point in your career, um, there's, there's something after that. There's what I, you know, I think of as an entrance. So you're selling your company. Um, you may stay with the company that buys you or you may do something else. But what you do next is almost more interesting because of that exit. So the exit is literally a snapshot in time. And as far as I'm concerned, it's one of the least interesting aspects or the one we should obsess about less Mm. than how you achieve dominance to get to the exit, as John describes, and what you do next, what you do with that power. Because you're not just getting money. It's not just about a dollar sign or a euro sign. It's about getting power to do Mm. something with that power and to make an impact. So that's what I think when I think back in my own personal experience and I see other entrepreneurs they're very rarely ever thinking about an endpoint, chunk of money, a desert island somewhere to, to soak it all up. They're thinking about the next thing even before they realize the potential of the current thing. 
I remember the last time you were here, I can't remember this particular um, focus of the show, but I, I know that you were saying after your exit, the next time you went to get funding uh, or the next time you were you were thinking about Kinzen, that it made it so much easier to go back to people with an exit under your belt. So for both of you, I guess, um, I assume that's a thing, as they say. I assume if you've exited once, twice, three times, it gets easier every time you take off the training wheels and you're, you're a bigger deal. Yeah, is that the case? Yeah. Generally speaking, with, with one proviso, there's a real difficulty around it, which is depending on what the person wants to do next. Okay. So you see a lot of cases where, um, where people want to say, okay, I've had an exit in one area. And the question then is, well, I want to go to an, a completely different area. Now, they have a lot of credibility because of what they've done in one situation. The question is, is how transferable is that to the other? Yeah. So that's one type of journey. And people just do it out of curiosity is what gets them going. Other people want to stay in, in, in the next level of change in the area that they know. Now, that person has a lot more strength in theory in terms of their understanding, the prior relationships, the, the expertise. So they should be able to go faster, mm. uh, make less errors, and actually be more precise in the execution and getting there. Now, they're all theories. Yeah. The, the reality is, is the data on it is actually pretty mixed. Okay, because I was going to ask you then, as, a, as an investor, would there be um, a preference there? You know, if, if two people who have exited come to you and... and are talking to you about future prospects and one wants to go back in or stay in the industry they're in and another wants to meander off towards something else. Do you have a preference there? Well, the odd, the odd thing about VC is, uh, is why it's, it's portrayed as a narrative as a people business because that's how things get done. And they're the, finally, we put the bet with, with a person. Actually, what we're really betting on is that person in a market. Now, Mark captured it quite well earlier on. We talked about some, someone creating a vision of how a market might look like in several years' time, ahead of when the big companies really want to deploy and, and take risks. <clears throat> and actually, that's what we're looking for. So our first decision is around a market opportunity. The second decision is the person in that context. Mm. So while the team would, a team coming to us who've done it before would have enormous credibility and you'd be looking to find a way to do it with them, mm. actually, your primary, your primary decision is market-based. That and hasn't I, really changed. And I think totally from the perspective of the entrepreneur, I think you have to just press a reset button and have no expectations. If you go into an investor, you know, wearing your first eggs around you like a jacket, yeah. it's ridiculous. You need to shed the you ego get, before you absolutely. get there. Absolutely. That's actually the point. Mm -hmm. You need to completely assume that you're pressing a reset button with one exception, and that is you are more resilient. So you can look backwards and you can see how close you might have come to, to disaster, to those mortality moments in the company the first time around and how you rallied and how you got out of that, how you survived long enough for the industry to catch up with you. And the biggest, I think, risk for an entrepreneur the second time around is assuming that the industry is going to you know, listen to them mm -hmm. and speed up its development you know, to catch up with their vision. So there is a, an overconfidence that you can be very guilty of. But by the same token, your ability to stay in the game, to be a better leader, to be more resilient, mm -hmm. and also to have the power to turn around to your staff and to your team and say, you know, we've been through tough times mm -hmm. before. How do we get through it? And you have a landmark to point to. And I think that's hugely important and probably not as you know, well, I think, understood by entrepreneurs themselves and even to an extent by some investors. So the other side to it then is as a result of being able to have those skills, well, the outcomes, you can argue whether the outcomes are the same or they're more likely to be successful. What they are more likely to get is more capital at the start. So they can attract better people because they've done it before. They can attract more capital than they would have had the last time at the starting point. So now they're better resourced to take on the challenges. So the resilience is not just within the person. They've got a more resilient company to start with at the same time. And one thing that comes up in here a lot is the pressure once you've taken funding, the pressure from investors to get to that exit. Um, how do you deal with that? Well, let's go back to what John said. Like One of the things I think that's most frustrating as an entrepreneur is we're all put up together in a group and told, you're all alike. <coughs> there are very few common denominators yeah. that unite all entrepreneurs. One entrepreneur may go into the business to change the business, to have an impact Another one goes in to flip the business to make some money, and they're a serial entrepreneur. They have an addiction. I don't completely get that kind of person myself, personally, but there, there's very different motivations, and that you take into this process. So there's three deals with an exit. There's one from day one. The moment you talk to an investor, you take on money, you are actually shaping the outcome. Uh, I was very lucky to sit down with one of our investors in Storyful who looked at it and said, I think this is a four-year play. 
this is the amount of money I think you'll sell the company for. This is the stake you'll have at the end. And this is the kind of person that might buy you. They were almost eerily accurate about it. And while I didn't necessarily want to sell the business at the beginning, it gave me a real guidepost by which to judge my success. Everything from the share options you give out, from the investor you take on, the staff you hire, uh, the kind of market you go into dictates the nature uh, of that deal. Um, So from my point of view, you have to be at the very beginning, like day one, every single thing you do from the office space you rent, particularly the investors you take on, you have to know what the potential landing zone is. Not the exact shape of an exit deal, but where you want to be in four years' time. Um, And as much as it's important to get uh, advice on those elements of exiting, it must be equally important to find the right person to give you that advice. How did you know... Well, I mean, it's funny, you know, this is where I talk about my relationship with John, for example. I mean, John was an investor, but was a mentor and actually particularly around things like sales. So areas where you know you don't have, I have a communication ability with my background, but I wasn't necessarily sure about how I close deals, how I create that sense of inevitability about my business. So, you know, over coffees out in our sort of joint hometown, I would be able to share a little bit with John about where I needed to be. So finding mentors is as important as finding investors. And if you're lucky, they're the same kind of person or sometimes the very same person, I would think. And I'm wondering what you both think about the way um, exits are portrayed in the media, because there seems to be a survivor bias at the moment that um, the people at the helm, the founders are lauded as you know these heroes of business. But then the stats say that only 10% of people are even offered an exit. Those two things don't really match up. They don't because it's, and in fairness, you know, for people who've achieved an exit, uh, it is, as particularly as a large exit, it's a, it's a pretty big point in their lives. So, you, so they're getting a lot of feedback, which is, you are great, you are amazing, because they have achieved something quite extraordinary. So it's very difficult for them not to communicate, to, 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 as we would describe it sometimes, you know, with the leap, we were free. It was one step, two steps, boom, we were there. And just going back to the other question, maybe they tied them together. So what we're most interested in, if we assume we've, we've done our best whatever set of abilities we have to find, you know, meet a team in a market that we think this is right for VC. Now, that's not all situations. It's a small subset of situations. What we're really, really focused on in working with, and Mark was an outstanding example of it, was, well, how do we execute with the limited resources that we have? Execute to get more resources, either from customers or from other investors, Mm -hmm. against this vision that Mark had in his particular case of how news was going to change. So, we actually are a little bit obsessive about how we execute in that vision and how we can prove to ourselves, because we're, we're in the company now with Mark, in Mark's case, that actually what we're doing is getting, our, getting our there, our, ourselves to that point. We don't actually talk about exit all the time. That's the big myth of right. all of this. So is Be- it a case of if you build it, they will come? If they build it and they know. Mm. If they build it and they know, and they, they, they begin to appreciate this vision of this marketplace, the entrepreneur has actually started out way before the large company has thought about it. The entrepreneur has actually decided, actually, I'm going to take a bet, a huge personal bet, separate to what the VCs are doing, that I think in five or six, seven years' time, this world is going to look like this. And remember that the, for the entrepreneur, it's like waking up the day after an exit. It's like waking up after a car crash. Yeah. And you're checking your limbs to make sure that you're still intact and you're still alive. And your profound sense is not elation, it's relief. My wife took a taxi the day that we stole Storyful couldn't pay for the taxi. We were literally personally invested so heavily in the business. We had nothing. And the day after, I remember feeling this strange sense of just a profound relief as I looked at my own family. Because I knew, and I think, you know, we all knew involved in the business, there are near mortality moments that it took to get there. Your point about so few entrepreneurs will ever get to a point where someone makes an offer. And, And a lot of those deals will fall apart before the exit. And when the exit happens... Most of those exits go very badly for the founder, right? So there's so many chances along the way to screw it all up that you're not thinking the day after you're Superman or Superwoman. You're just thinking, I survived. And if you start believing the hype, then as far as I'm concerned, you know, you should be just consigned to a case somewhere in the corner uh, if that's what you want. And for me, it's about building teams that build a company um, and you're there to soak up their anxiety 
and hopefully at some point be able to just relax and pay back all the people that were good to you along the way, not just the investors, but your own family, your supporters, and most of all, your team. Make sure it's their success that they can bang the gong and not just you and you stand up on some stage at a tech conference. It's actually uh, so profoundly, uh, you know, improbability an exit uh, that when you, you know, after the back of it, you really have to feel that sense of relief and appreciation for other people or else you're not fit for purpose as an entrepreneur. And that's the best case scenario. But what about the worst case scenario? What's the impact for everybody involved when you, maybe the company falls at the last exit hurdle? Well, it depends on, well, there's a lot of factors. Well, the, so if we take, there's usually a few scenarios. So if the business is a operating company and it's profitable, just imagine that scenario. So it's gone past the investor stage. It's at that stage where it has control over its own destiny. It's not beholden to the next investor, the next transaction. Okay, there's a reset in terms of people's expectations and what has to be done to get to the next exit window or understanding why we didn't get an exit. And in some cases, it's not you, it is them. There's lots of reasons acquirers decide at the last minute not to buy a company. Not to do with the company at all. Mm. So you've got to take a little bit of time to, first of all, decompress. Is it also them? First off. There's, uh, in that particular case, though, the company has a choice. It now can take that time. The more difficult cases are where you've had an exit opportunity, it's reasonably sized, it's got very close to the extent that the staff, not the founder actually, are getting out their calculators wondering how much that means for me, mm, and I've nearly yeah. banked it. A lot of the founder is fu- The founder is fully aware actually of the risks involved mm. in this, and then it doesn't happen. Now, picking up that bunch of people particularly when the next step is actually unclear. The company might only have three or six months of cash. It's got to raise money again. It's got to reset itself with the resilience Mark talked about to go to think of another five, the next five years. Because the next set of investors and the current investors don't want to hear about, well, any minute now we'll get bought. What they want to hear about is we're going to continue to dominate this marketplace. So how are we going to do that? And that reset is the most difficult where you've now got a funding crisis and you've just come out of the emotional goldfish bowl of an exit that's just actually got incredibly close and hasn't happened. And that's very important to understand the due diligence to get to an exit can kill you. Because it can take eight to nine months, did in our case, when Storyful. And in all that time, you're focused completely on getting all the data, the due diligence and for this potential inquirer. And if they walk away, that's when it kills the startup. Um, So I think we'd be very, very careful. I mean, we were getting massive books to fill out. We were being asked how many private aircraft did we have in a company that was barely affording the light bulbs. So you get into this kind of ridiculous situation where, as John said, you're tempted to spend the money before you do. Mm -hmm. That is near fatal. Um, And so therefore, I think you have to enter an exit conversation in the same way you you enter any fundamental conversation about a startup is you got to be able to walk away. If you cannot walk away from that deal, then there's something fundamentally wrong with your company. And if you lull yourself into a false sense of security, then you could kill what you love. Um, so it's an extremely dangerous time as well as an exciting time. And with everything with the startup, with an entrepreneur, you have to know you can walk away. And if you don't, when, you're screwed. When you know that going into it and how difficult it's going to be, I guess we're talking about the nature of risk now. Um, I know you were in a situation where you had an offer of more investment and you had an exit offer. How do you decide, especially if you've poured your heart and soul into something, how do you decide whether to take the money and go off and grow it yourself or to keep going to an exit when you've got eight months of hell? It's very important as an entrepreneur to know how you keep score, right? If you keep score about the biggest round you raised or the money you're going to make in an exit, it's only half the picture. For us, it was always impact. I wanted to change the media business. And I got to a point where I realized the amount of money I'd need to raise to do that, given the state of the company, was just prohibitive. The better way of doing it was, as I say, not treating this as an exit by being bought by a big media company, but as an entrance to a big stage. When we sold Storyful, 34 people worked for it. There's now more than 200 across all the continents of the world. So for me, the success is in that, this present-day reality, rather than what was happening December 2013 when we sold the company. So my definition of success was impact uh, and the quickest way, the best way, the most assured way for the company to have an impact was to sell it. You know, it's uh, it's a it's a bizarre irony, but you know, it's it's sometimes you have to kill that dream of being independently owned to achieve the success and the promise of the company you founded. Um, and to that extent, it does require a certain sense of 
lack of ego in the end of the day, which is counter to what really drives I suppose, most entrepreneurs. And it's, the interesting thing about it is that the different entrepreneurs come to different conclusions on that, if you want to call it risk, that profile. Um, yeah. So it's just why you see so people make people different choices. Way. Some people make a choice to actually, well, I do want to raise more money and do this. That doesn't mean they'll be successful. Mm. That doesn't mean they'll achieve their personal or professional image, but that was the decision they made on a certain day. How uh, do you decide what to advise? Like if it was someone like Mark or, or any company, how do you... Uh, yeah, it, just, it seems like such a burden of responsibility to advise someone what to do, whether to take more funding or take the exit. Well, the, the first one, is, the question is how many people are involved. Right. So, the, the, so who, who, who is deciding is the first thing. So first of all, we don't have a magic button. Even if we owned, it's not like we own 99% of these companies. We don't. We own significant stakes and other VCs own significant stakes. So what, what, what you hope for over time, ideally, mm-hmm. is that you've, you've developed a relationship with, the, with the, the manager team and the founders. So it's a pretty broad set of people now. It can be five, six, seven people. It can be as small as two, but let's take it's five or six or seven. So the job of the VC is that over a period of several years, because you are pretty much in these things together for several years, you're able to discuss these very grey, nebulous subjects and making decisions in this greyness mm. that have huge inputs into them. There's personal ambition, there's risk, rewards, there's people's goals for their own lives and aspirations, all netted into this. And each one has got their own, all netted in. You'd hope that you'd found a way to have these tight discussions over the previous four, five, six, seven years building the business. The idea that you'd come to this one day cold and try and decide this with a spreadsheet. Sure actually is a little bit fake. Mm. Now, sure, if the number is completely silly, but in most cases, acquirers are quite smart. They're quite attached to their acquiring mm. dollars. So they're quite good at working out what the next stage for the company might be, what the capital ask might be to fulfill the company's ambition or dream, and the extent to which you could get that versus they, what they might pay today. So they, they would have thought about this fairly carefully to try and, on their side, figure out how do they tap into those different, uh, different emotions. But you're hoping you've been to enough scenarios of the business that when this arrives... Actually, collectively, you've nearly 90% of the way understanding what's the right next step. You all intuitively know, so to speak. Yeah, and, th- right. and this is a reflection of, and people will all feel, you know, now the other side is the numbers. That all, people, people look around the table at the participants in the business and feel it's a fair outcome for everyone. You know, mm-hmm. is this the best we can do today with the risk that, that the future holds? Um, and then that's kind of how it happens. The, you know, you've had a, okay, we've had quite a few exits and, Mark, fortunately for us, um, did an amazing job with Storyful. You've had, on this show, you've had Richard from Digit. And then you've had um, Pat and Trustev as well. Now, I happen to know a little bit on the inside of all the ups and downs of their professional stories and their struggles and the point of it's that now Mark is, in fairness, Mark is doing entrepreneurs a huge favour in Ireland. Although hopefully people are listening about describing the moments in the taxi, describing the moments where actually you can't pay the wages. So go back to your earlier question about this is all preventable with survivor virus. It's, it's presented with incredible survivor bias at how smooth mm. it was. Mm-hmm. But in the three cases I've outlined who've achieved an amazing things in their industries, there were some incredibly fraught moments. You'd have to hope that people are listening to my wife called me and such and such rather than it was amazing. Just go, just don't <laughs> think, I mean, there's, there's a bizarre irony in what we're both saying here is you have to plan for an exit and think about what that might look okay. like. But if that's what becomes your North Star every morning you get up out of the day and you're ignoring what's going around you, you will fall over. Not only will you fail at that business, but you won't learn the lessons that you need to learn, you know, through through being an entrepreneur. And, And I think that's really fundamental. It's that balance between the two. So that's why I don't describe it as an exit. If it's a snapshot in time, fine. But if it's this be-all and end-all of your success as a person, as an individual, even as an entrepreneur, then I think you're going to end up failing because you become too obsessed with the outcome and not the journey itself. We're almost out of time, but I just want to ask you one more question before we go. Um, The rate, the increasing rate of emerging unicorns and overvaluations and the WeWork situation, what's your take on all of that in light of companies trying to exit? Uh, kind of casts a bit of a pall over things? Well, it, it does and it doesn't. So you I can, love the you, massive question. <laughs> you can, yeah, uh, like you, you have these very short, big questions and you want to answer them in 30 seconds. Um, so the first thing off is what's amazing is that these things exist. Is the amounts of capital that have been available um, against some of these ideas and you can argue the case whether the ideas are good, bad or indifferent or you can argue whether the metrics work. It is quite amazing that the sums of money 
that have been placed into some of these ideas have been placed. It's never happened before at the scale and at the pace. Now, now at, equally, that scale and pace is giving everyone a slight, ooh, I wonder how this works out mm. moment. Because what hasn't happened substantially yet is the exit markets haven't changed. So while there's examples of some very big exits, substantially corporates are fairly, the people buying the companies, including the stock market. So the stock market itself and IPOs are another way of buying the company or exiting or changing shareholders and let the company go on to achieve its ambition. That's all that's happening. So the buyers of companies have actually remained extraordinarily disciplined. So what's happened then and, on the other side? And so, the, so the, this disconnect that sometimes has yeah. to get resolved. I think so one of the things that's happened yeah. is, is the private markets, there's been so much capital available, have allowed a lot of companies, by the way, some of them, some of the companies who are unicorns are really are unicorns. Just be very clear. Mm. There's a whole bunch of them we don't know yet. But the, some of them have been able to raise capital as if they were public and fuel incredible growth. Uh, they have, and they've been able to do that without revealing anything to the public markets and haven't needed to yet. There's a huge group in the middle who at some point will be asked about the numbers. So while all this is very interesting and the WeWork CEO is a very good example of, you know, articulated the vision, articulated this new cultural environment for work, it was all very exciting, but never actually discussed the business. Mm-hmm. It turned out the business mattered. Yeah, I think in many ways when you look back in the last 10 years of the internet, I mean, 10 years ago, would you have predicted that Facebook would dominate the way it dominates right now? Would you predict the growth of Google? Would you predict many of the consumer trends in the internet? You would not. So I, I sometimes feel sorry for VCs and for investors who have to work out, this. none of this makes sense, right? We have to go with our gut on certain things. I think that the WeWork scenario is a great example of a disconnect between the underlying tectonic shift in consumer behavior and this froth that gave it the valuation it had. And I think that's what you got to look for, is look the way of consumers changing their behaviors around their phones, around the consumer information, uh, and, and stick with that. Don't let the, the trade press, because to be quite honest, the way tech is covered uh, is quite often quite fantastical. We love a great story. We love the idea that there are these superhumans uh, that lead these unicorns, when in fact they're just people that have connected to a change in consumer behavior at the right moment and are taking advantage of a tectonic shift in their industry. So focus on that uh, and, and less of the sort of the masters of the universe kind of narrative that lead to the kind of uh, sort of scenarios that we saw with WeWork. Okay, well, speaking of change and predicting trends, we're going to leave it at that and come back to both of you, John and Mark, in just a few minutes for their one to watch the who or what in Irish business they're keeping an eye on at the moment. That's coming up just after the Trailblazer. So eBay, Amazon, ASOS, Littlewoods, Parcel Connect, Fastway, if you've ever had a delivery from even one of these companies, chances are my next guest's company powered that delivery. Scurry, as the name might suggest, aims to get your parcel to you as quickly and efficiently as possible. It's a cloud-based service in the sunny southeast and its founder is here to tell us why it's been as successful as it has. So Rory, for some people who may be watching and don't know the intricacies of the tech behind this, what is a cloud-based delivery platform? Basically what it is, is a piece of software for retailers that allows them to give multiple options to their um, to their consumers. So for example, in the UK, we would connect up uh, delivery services like uh, Royal Mail, DPD, TNT, and then other ones which would be uh, like lockers uh, or for instance, Collect Plus, where you walk into your local store to pick up your parcel. So anything to do with delivery, uh, our platform allows you to connect uh, those uh, options for your customers if you're a retailer. A lot of the founders we speak to in this particular interview have very diverse backgrounds. They come from all different areas of business. Why this and why now? Well, it's been, what, nine years, but why this and why then, I suppose? Yeah. So um, my own background, I worked uh, in uh, sales and marketing. I worked in Waterford Crystal originally. Believe it or not, I was at the early days of the internet when we were deciding, should we go online or not? And again, Good choice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we gained some experience about the, uh, you know, uh, dealing with o- online. And in the early days, it was all about acquisition, getting the customers uh, to your site. And as that kind of progressed, I kind of realized the importance of delivery. 
And um, so I left Waterford Crystal, did some other things and eventually came back and found that some of the problems that we had uh, a couple of years previously still hadn't been solved and hence uh, kind of looked at that as an opportunity. And some of the names on your books at the moment eBay, Little Woods, Boo. Basically, my entire wardrobe at home has been powered by your deliveries, every brand that's out there. How was that a game changer for you guys when you started to get those people on board? Even a, from the confidence boost point of view, yeah, it must have really changed things. Yeah, so we've had some we have some great names, and we have some great names in two ways. We have some direct customers that we have um, integrated directly, and we have some great partners. So, for instance, we have you know thousands of uh, smaller customers that come through the eBay platform and use our use our software, and then we have two uh, larger partners, uh, one being Fastway Ireland. Uh, um, and uh, another one, ITD in the UK, which give us access to over 6,000 different customers. And some of them are the very big ones that you were mentioning. Mm-hmm. And also then some of the ones are the uh, the regular kind of smaller ones that if you're niche in a particular area that you're aware of, uh, but uh, maybe are not household names. And why Wexford? Uh, I'm from Wexford. Um, I'm very proud of being from Wexford. And I suppose when I started... Um, Going into the working life, it was 1991, there was very little jobs. Um, I was lucky enough to get a job locally in Waterford, in, in, in Waterford Crystal. Many of my friends emigrated at that time. And um, when I started the business, um, in fact, I looked at London, Dublin and, and you know, ideal locations probably um, to set up a business. Well, was probably not the ideal one mm. to, to set it up. There's challenges with that. Um, but I was very passionate about putting jobs in Wexford and giving people opportunities maybe that I didn't have uh, when you leave college to actually work uh, at home if that's what if that's what you want to do uh, and I love Wexford and we live there now we've got uh, four kids and we love the, love the lifestyle there but um, yeah well that, that's why Wexford. Okay uh, and other than the um, I guess county patriotism or the, the sentimentality of it being your home place etc which obviously makes a lot of sense um, do you think since the decision to be based there uh, you know, how has it affected your business in terms of, I'm thinking, talent acquisition, retention, uh, lifestyle, culture? Yeah. So there are challenges with it. But on the other side, I think there, uh, you know, most of our employees, uh, quite senior people who have had experience and have probably worked in Dublin or in other cities and are looking to return for, you know, lifestyle. And, um, you know, our biggest, uh, I suppose, acquisition of talent comes from people who have spent time, you know, either here or somewhere else uh, in Dublin. uh, And they are looking for to move back to the country to have a different kind of uh, lifestyle. So um, most of the people are able to walk to the office. Uh, They can then, you know, at lunchtime almost walk to the beach. You could actually walk to the beach from our our office in the town in in, in Wexford town centre. And that's a kind of a lifestyle choice that appeals to really talented people. And uh, yes, we, we, you know, there's some challenges to get talent, but on the other hand, um, retention um, is, is is really positive and uh, when we get somebody they, they tend to stay. Very good. Uh, and do you think, uh, brings me to my next question, I know you were recently voted one of Ireland's greatest places to work. Do you think then that that lifestyle has been a huge part of that? Yeah, um, so that has been a huge part of it. We've worked really hard at the great places to work, and we actually yesterday had uh, our results from uh, the uh, from from this year's uh, results, and we've done again quite well in that. And um, I think it's really important um, that when people come to work, that they have a place that uh, that can enthuse them. And you spend most of your day uh, working and most of your life working, so you need to have somewhere that you actually. Um, that's a great place to work, and um, we really buy into that concept, and we think it's fantastic. Uh, it's a fantastic accolade to have, and we put a lot of work into making sure that we keep it. And I know you got a lot of support as well uh, from from different the enterprise office in Wexford, and I assume that was a pretty crucial part of the process and getting the company up off the ground. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So um, at, to this stage, we've probably raised about six million in in, uh, in investment. But the first 12,000 that I got came from the local Wexford development, local development. And, you know, have somebody initially to put their faith in you, even with, you know, 12K, which seems like a tiny amount of money in comparison to, uh, you know, what, uh, what we have now. That was fantastic. 
to actually get that. And that was the first step of getting investment, going through a process of getting investment. And the Wexford Local Development, the Wexford County Enterprise Board, which is now Leo, um, and the Southeast uh, Business Incubation Centre have been really good at uh, you know helping helping us get off get off the ground. In terms of next steps. I suppose anyone in this studio that I ask about next steps, we can't really talk about next steps at all without talking about the first step to the next steps, which is Brexit. Yeah. So How will that affect you? Because you have a lot of relationships in the UK, don't you? Yeah, we have a lot, a lot of our yeah. customers are in the UK. And um, for us... Our software, first of all, has a you know, great advantage because what our software does is help people to export. So we deal with customs, um, you know, day in, day out for, uh, for, their, for our customers who are shipping outside of the EU. Um, so to turn on or to put on the UK uh, for Brexit is a matter of flicking a switch now at this stage on our, on, on our software. So we can have people Brexit ready immediately. So, you know, there's, a, there's an advantage from that point of view. Um, I suppose... The disadvantage, you know, for us is sterling, um, because most of our most of our customers are are based in in the uh, the UK, and just the volatility with sterling is a is is a, is a challenge. Uh, but the second thing, I suppose, is that. Um, you know, just uncertainty doesn't help um, people make business decisions. And um, that's the biggest challenge. So as soon as it's, the sooner that a decision is actually made and we know what it is and we can move forward, then we can actually deal with it. And, you know, I think in Ireland, we're really good at dealing with things. So um, we'd just like to know. We'd just like to know. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, you know, the sooner that we know, and the sooner that we'll actually be able to deal with it. And I don't think Brexit for us, I think there's plenty of advantages to it. We also can't realise those, you know, advantages until mm. we have a decision. Well, speaking of advantages and disadvantages, um, I'm just back from from Web Summit last week in uh, Lisbon, where I work when I'm not in here in Joe. And one thing that came up repeatedly on stage uh, was Ireland in particular and Ireland's broadband. And it was bizarre to hear like Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft and Kate Brandt, the chief sustainability sustainability officer of Google, name check Ireland and uh, mention places like, I can't remember if they, if they mentioned Wexford, but they mentioned uh, Fingal in, in, in Dublin and places along the coast and in Leinster in Ireland that were being completely underserved by broadband and what a what a disgrace this was. And I couldn't help, as you were talking there about Wexford, think, you know, what is the broadband like down there? Is it enough for a cloud-based service like yourself? That has to be a challenge. Yeah, so in Wexford Town, it's perfect. And, um, you know, we have more than uh, more than enough. Uh, our, our service is fantastic. We've never had an issue with it. We did originally, when we set up the company, um, we started in Duncannon, which is a seaside village. And kind of uh, the original idea was that, uh, you know, we would uh, live by beside the beach and literally be able to walk on, uh, onto mm. the beach uh, in our original office. Um, the broadband there wasn't good enough and then we moved to Wexford Town. Now, there were other reasons getting people to actually go that extra bit. You mm. can get people to move to Wexford Town, but to sure. get people to move out into a seaside village that is quite sleepy in the um, in, in, in the winter yeah, can, can be a little bit more difficult. Um, but the broadband there is not good enough to or was not good enough to sustain the um, uh, the business at, at that stage, and was one of the major um, reasons for actually moving, moving to Wexford Town. So, if we want people to live in our communities and we want to have a rural Ireland that's that's effective, mm. I think we have to invest in in, in, in the broadband plan. And, and, and is that something you would hear a lot from other people in abs- in your world? Ab- ab- absolutely. Yeah. Like it, in this day and age, it is not acceptable that everybody. Has, doesn't have access to, to broadband. It's as important as water. And, um, you know, we've got to get that sorted. And not everyone wants to live in Dublin either. No, not everybody wants to love, uh, live, live in Dublin. And I think that we have uh, people who, you know, want to embrace uh, remote working, uh, want to be able to have uh, that kind of lifestyle and um, take even taking pressure off the capital uh, and, and the resources in the capital that uh, if we're going to do that, we need to have the, we need to have the infrastructure to do so. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, so we, we talked about Brexit, the first next step. But after that's out of the way, regardless of the outcome, then what's the next step for Scurry? I know you've got almost seven million raised. Uh, this particular show uh, is about exiting. Would you consider an exit? Would you want to exit? Well, of course, you know, any um, 
you know, any of our uh, investors are ultimately looking for an exit. Uh, at the moment, I think there's a huge amount still to be done, and we have a team that uh, can actually do that. So um, would I consider an exit? Yes, we would consider an exit when the uh, time is uh, appropriate. And you never know when that. Uh, you know, I have not exited before, but, you know, as I talk to people who have done it previously, they say to you, you know, you don't know when that time will come because mm. when somebody comes with the right offer that will help build the business more and bring it on to another level and you look at that, you'll probably go, you know, this is the, and you'll know when it's the right time. Um, we've been approached in the past, so, you know, that we, we have, we've ha- have had a new number of approaches in the past. Um, they weren't right for, for us, but um, um, we just want to build the business and if the right partner comes along that can help us to to get to where we want to go faster we'd we, we consider that yeah and even if you're approached and you don't accept the offer um psychologically do you think that has an effect does it maybe validate that obviously you're doing something right absolutely it does yeah absolutely it does because um you know as as a founder you were always you know trying and a ceo you're always trying to you know project a you know positive image and but there are sometimes doubts. Are you doing the right thing? You know, when you get up in the morning, you go, God, you know, we're at this for a while. Are we doing the right thing? Are we are we really making a difference? And when somebody comes and puts a you know a value to that, and you kind of look at it and go, Well, yes, we we we've actually brought it from you know A to B, and maybe B wasn't where we wanted to get more, and that's that's having ambition. But uh, yes, it does kind of uh, make you a bit more confident. And uh, on the other side of the coin, then, if no exit offers came along and you were to continue by yourself, so to speak, what's the end goal or what's the plan? Like, is there a level in your head where you say, when we are powering X amount of deliveries with Y amount of companies, then I'll be happy? Or how does that work for an entrepreneur? Yeah, so for for, for currently, what, what you know, our focus is uh, to move, uh, we're doing very well in the UK market, but to move into Europe. So, so that's our that's our next ambition. There is no global um, kind of solution for what we're doing. So there's a global opportunity, but we're going to take that in kind of one step at a time. So while the long term vision is, you know, a global solution, the next step is is Europe. And I think it's really important, I think, as an entrepreneur to be focused. And to say, you know, to know where you're, where you're going, have the long term vision, um, but also know, you know, in the next two or three years, what's what's that step, and we really, I suppose, razor focused on that. So that that's where we're going for now. So, would your advice to uh, people in your in a similar position be uh, go one year at a time? Because we hear all about these five year plans, but really, it sounds like you you would advise going smaller than that. I think you've got to have your five-year plan, so you've got to know where you're going. But, you know, you're kind of, that's kind of broad brushstrokes. Um, and then, you know, your 12-month plan needs to be, you know, fairly detailed. And, you know, I think I've famously heard that uh, no plan ever uh, survives contact with the enemy. So that plan, you know, that you've made um, is good for kind of giving you a direction. But things are going to change during that year. So you really need to then at the end of that period look back and say, well, what worked, what didn't work? And does that change what we what what, what we want to do? Um, and yeah, so that's where I think that kind of yearly kind of focus is, is quite important. OK, so micro plan and macro plan. Yeah. Very good. Thanks so much for joining us, Rory, and I'm sure we'll see you again. I'll think of Scurry every time I order something online now. That's great. (laughs) Thanks a lot. That was Rory O'Connor, founder of Scurry there. I'm still here in studio with my panel, John O'Sullivan from Act Venture Capital and Mark Little from Kinzen. We're about to do the one to watch. The who or what in Irish business is on their radar at the moment and why. So I'll go to you first, Mark. What's caught your eye? Well, so I'm obsessed at the moment, obviously, with my own startup, Kinzen, on the way people are changing their consumption of information. So, you know, I think at the moment, the two big bets in the media business, and while the media business has been in free fall, we're starting to see the other side of the opportunity now in media disruption. So it's all about, for me, personalization and voice. So I think the fact that people are now demanding information uh, fits their daily routine means that there are a lot more capacity, I think, for startups to exploit this opportunity for information and voice. So the one I'm watching is NOAA, News Over Audio, uh, founded by an entrepreneur called Gareth Hickey, which is already now a couple of years down the tracks and has got some really impressive deals, primarily around financial intelligence, which was the first kind of deals it did with premium publishers like the FT. Um, so I'm watching those guys because right now I think they're on a tipping point where this next year for them, I think, is going to be big. 
Uh, and because I know the business and I know the way people think of them, it's very strange for me sometimes to be hearing people telling me about a great new startup they know, and it's actually in Dublin. So the one to watch for me is Noah here in Dublin. Okay, and actually on Voice, Mark, do you think Voice is where it needs to be at the moment? No, I think one of the biggest problems for voice is discovery. So we're still, for example, if anyone loves podcasts, we see podcast consumption is stratospheric. But at the same time, finding a great podcast, there's a lot of crap out there. So, I mean, in reality, the biggest opportunity right now is still for people that can separate news from noise. And there's an awful lot of noise still in the voice space, particularly, I think, in the skills area. But I think in the area of consumption around personalizing your own uh, habits as you put your earphones in on the dart in the morning is a massive opportunity. But in some ways, the real opportunity is how people discover that and, and fit into their own personal routine. So discovery of voice, of the right voice, of the right story, that's the critical opportunity, not throwing more audio onto podcasts or throwing more audio onto Alexa. It's all about discovery. Fair enough. And Noah are your ones to watch. Yep. What about yourself, John? I hate this question. <laughs> it's really unfair because... Um, I, not my fault. I know it's not your fault. You have to ask <laughs> no, it. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It's, yeah. uh, well, why, why do we think it's unfair? So we have our current portfolio of kind of companies we're working with is about just over 30. Mm. So each one of those entrepreneurs is kind of going on a journey Mark went on and they believe they're the one. And what they're doing, they believe they're the one, they're going to succeed and they're going to have to believe that to, to go on with the resilience that's required. So it would be, wouldn't be fair to any of those to select sure. them. Yeah. And equally on the outside, we're looking at a whole bunch of companies and we want to look at a whole range of companies. So we don't, so, so out of self-interest, we don't exclude any particular <laughs> group. But, so we, it's always a terrible question. But, so, but, so what do we, what do we think about, uh, to, to not give you answers isn't, isn't fair. So the biggest thing, it's been around for a while and it's hard to get your head around how far it could go is the power of free. Okay. Do you mean like freemium or? No. Um, the amount of things you get, consumers get and businesses get now at ultra low cost mm. that were expensive 10, 20, 30 years ago is extraordinary. And if I had the charts here with me, it would be very boring. I could chart that for you in numbers. So that, that free, that, that idea of that you, incredible products of incredible high quality that are incredibly useful will be given away for free or near as free actually well, has been what's driven an awful lot of what's gone on right. in the last 10 or 15 years. Well, let's get into that just a little bit then. What kind of things are we, I'm, I'm excited here as a consumer, <laughs> what kind of things am I going to be getting for free and for whom and why, from well, whom and why? We'll give you a bunch of examples. So you get Google for free. True. Oh, that's extraordinary. Mm. You get Android for free. Android is a full operating system with a theme of 1,000 developers. Yeah, it, was, it has a community, but at its core, it's a product. It is the discipline of a product. It's got product engineering wrapped around it. Mm. It's free. But free as a price, right? Uh, I was about to say. Sorry, go on. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. doing yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, the old... Yeah, we'll get to that in a second because yeah. there, is there is another side to this. So you have companies... So, I, I, if, so predicting trends is really difficult. Mark described it very well, some of the difficulties in trying to look 10 years out because if we all admitted to ourselves 10 years ago what we thought was going to happen... So for the amount of energy people put into predicting the future, it's amazing how really poor we are at it. But actually, there are some experiments you can run in hindsight. And there's a really interesting one. And Mark, Mark's touched on it, and you brought it up in terms of voice. So if we went back, and unfortunately, I've been doing this sort of around in the software industry for long enough to be able to do this. If we went back 20 years ago, um, yeah, 15, maybe 20, but 15 years ago would be more reason, 15 to 18 years ago, you can name, and you can name the companies. And you can name the research laboratories and the people who did the work, and they're still in the industry. And you look at the amount of investment and intensity around voice, around the basic underlying mathematics that was used and the basic techniques for getting computers to recognize speech and vice versa, mm. and then speech to text and, 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 and that area. All those techniques were incredibly well developed 20 years ago. In fact, the science was done 10 years before that as well. And people built, built, raised huge amounts of money at the time. I mean, enormous sums of money, built enormous companies and organizations and teams trying to take those products to market and get people to pay for them. And they all ended up as much smaller businesses than anybody anticipated. In many cases, they went bust. And if you'd have told those people, and it was billions was spent, that ultimately the most powerful use case for voice would be given away for free with a quality of service that they could only dream of delivering that the consumer would never have to pay for. Mm. And that was their business model. 
they would absolutely look like you, look at you and think you've arrived from Mars. And that's what Alexa has delivered with Amazon. And but, the trade-off they're getting is they're able to train the speech engines now. So there is a price. They're trading, the, training those speech engines on a billion hours per week of data that they couldn't get any other way. So they're clearly doing it for a reason. There is a commercial end game. So you're seeing people use the power of free and the power, really when I say free, of ultra cheap computing at a scale that's quite extraordinary. And what's coming in the next 10 years mm. is, is actually quite hard to understand how powerful, and it's well established what's coming. It's not a secret. And the biggest companies are already doing the work. But the key point there is the amount of data. Everyone's assuming yeah. the amount of data these guys will have access to is going to remain either finite or infinite, infinite. right? Mm-hmm. I think there's going to be a big change big as behavioral back. third-party tracking is wiped out by the likes of Apple, maybe for their... So we're going to see, I think... A real problem where we have everyone has a voice, literally can mm. speak, can talk, and it's all very cheap. And I agree with John, natural language processing, for example, is a technology you hear an awful lot more about because it sorts out the text. But when everyone can talk, how do you know who to listen to? So I think the discovery and the curation on the basis of first-party data and trust, and trust yeah. I think they're going to be the prices of free that I would be watching out for. I don't disagree, but I do think that... Uh, people are becoming aware of okay. the abuse of their data. And that's but that, going to be a big factor. But that's at the consumer level. At the business level, there's another way it's been played out. So there are currently very large businesses out there, very exciting businesses, that are having to confront the idea that their competitor is offering a better product, no charge. It's looking to source its revenues in a different way from the consumers and, and from its business users. And the consumers and business users are starting to say yes. Now, how a large organization, even a quite a current organization, responds to that. And that is all coming from the same underlying technologies that make the internet go. Computing is going to get, if you think it's cheap now, it's going to get a lot cheaper. So it's going to pervade and, and open up these opportunities in ways that are incredibly hard to predict. Uh, it's why cars are autonomous. It's the computing industry is delivering that. It's not the car industry. For a man who didn't want to give an answer, that is a pretty <laughs> epic answer. A lot of food for thought in that, John, that we'll all be mulling over Every for the rest VC of the day. Every VC now is running out to invest in free <laughs> as a consequence. Well, thank you so much for those amazing ones to watch. Um, John O'Sullivan and Mark Little. I, almost call, I keep almost calling you Mark Kinzen from Little. <laughs> John O'Sullivan <laughs> and Mark Little from point of view, I'm happy That's, with that. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. And thanks to you, of course, for watching and thanks to AIB for backing the show. That's all in, all done for this week. As usual, please hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. We'll be back here next week talking about sustainability, something Alison Kowser on one of our recent episodes identified as one of the biggest challenges facing Irish businesses in 2020. So you don't want to miss that. We'll see you then.